Chapter Four of the Moon Maid by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Thomas Copeland. Chapter Four Captured. Our first view of the creatures proved beyond a question of a doubt that they were, in effect, human quadrupeds. The faces were very broad, much broader than any human faces that I have ever seen, but their profiles were singularly like those of the ancient North American Indians. Their bodies were covered with a garment, with short legs that ended above the knees, and which was ornamented about the collar and also about the bottom of each leg with a rather fanciful geometric design. About the barrel of each was a surcicle, and connected with it by a backstrap was something analogous to a breeching and earth horse harness. With the breaching straps crossed on either side was a small circular ornament, and there was a strap resembling a trace leading from this forward to the collar, passing beneath a quite large circular ornament which appeared to be supported by the surcingle. Smaller straps, running from these two ornaments upon the left side, supported a sheath in which was carried what appeared to be a knife of some description and upon the right side a short spear was carried in a boot, similarly suspended from the two ornaments, much as the carbine of our ancient earth cavalry was carried. The spear, which was about six feet long, was of peculiar design, having a slender well-shaped head, from the base of which a crescent-shaped arm curved backward from one side, while upon the side opposite the crescent was a short, sharp point, at right angles to the median line of the weapon. For a moment we stood there eyeing each other, and from their appearance I judged that they were as much interested in us as we were in them. I noticed that they kept looking beyond us, across the river toward the mainland. Presently I turned for a glance in the same direction, and far away, beyond a thin forest, I saw a cloud of dust which seemed to be moving rapidly toward us. I called Arthur's attention to it. Reinforcements, I said. That is what that fellow was calling for when he screamed. I think we had better try conclusions with the five before any more arrive. We will try to make friends first, but if we are unsuccessful, we must fight our way back toward the ship at once. Accordingly, I stepped forward toward the five with a smile upon my lips and my hand outstretched. I knew of no other way in which to carry to them an assurance of our friendliness. At the same time, I spoke a few words in English, in a pleasant and conciliatory tone. Although I knew that my words would be meaningless to them, I hoped that they would catch their intent from my inflection. Immediately upon my advance, one of the creatures turned and spoke to another, indicating to us for the first time that they possessed a spoken language. Then he turned and addressed me in a tongue that was, of course, utterly meaningless to me, but if he had misinterpreted my action, I could not misunderstand that which accompanied his words, for he reared up on his hind feet and simultaneously drew his spear and a wicked-looking short-bladed sword or dagger, his companions at the same time following his example, until I found myself confronted by an array of weapons backed by scowling malignant faces. Their leader uttered a single word which I interpreted as meaning halt, so I halted. I pointed to Orthus and to myself, and then to the trail along which we had come, and then back in the direction of the ship. 
I was attempting to tell them that we wished to go back whence we had come. Then I turned to Orthus. Draw your revolver, I said, and follow me. If they interfere, we shall have to shoot them. We must get out of this before the others arrive. As we turned to retrace our steps along the trail, the five dropped upon all fours, still holding their weapons in their forepaws, and galloped quickly to a position blocking our way. Stand aside, I yelled, and fired my pistol above their heads. From their actions I judged that they had never before heard the report of a firearm, for they stood an instant in evident surprise, and then wheeled and galloped off for about a hundred yards, where they turned and halted again facing us. They were still directly across our trail, and Orthus and I moved forward determinedly toward them. They were talking among themselves, and at the same time watching us closely. When we had arrived at a few yards from them, I again threatened them with my pistol, but they stood their ground, evidently reassured by the fact that the thing that I held in my hand, though it made a loud noise, inflicted no injury. I did not want to shoot one of them if I could possibly avoid it, so I kept on toward them, hoping that they would make way for us, but instead they reared again upon their hind feet and threatened us with their weapons. Just how formidable their weapons were I could not, of course, determine, but I conjectured that if they were at all adept in its use, their spear might be a very formidable thing indeed. I was within a few feet of them now, and their attitude was more warlike than ever, convincing me that they had no intention of permitting us to pass peacefully. Their features, which I could now see distinctly, were hard, fierce, and cruel in the extreme. Their leader seemed to be addressing me, but of course I could not understand him, but when at last, standing there upon his hind feet, with evidently as much ease as I stood upon my two legs, he carried his spear back in a particularly menacing movement, I realized that I must act, and act quickly. I think the fellow was just on the point of launching his spear at me when I fired. The bullet struck him square between the eyes, and he dropped like a log without a sound. Instantly the others wheeled again and galloped away, this time evincing speed that was almost appalling. Clearing spaces of a hundred feet in a single bound, even though handicapped, as they must have been, by the weapons which they clutched in their forepaws. A glance behind me showed the dust cloud rapidly approaching the river upon the mainland, and calling to Orthus to follow me, I ran rapidly along the trail which led back in the direction of the ship. The four moon creatures retreated for about half a mile, and then halted and faced us. They were still directly in our line of retreat, and there they stood for a moment, evidently discussing their plans. We were nearing them rapidly, for we had discovered that we, too, could show remarkable speed when retarded by gravity only one-sixth of that of Earth. To clear forty feet at a jump was nothing, our greatest difficulty lying in a tendency to leap to two great heights, which naturally resulted in cutting down our horizontal distance. As we neared the four, who had taken their stand upon the summit of a knoll, I heard a great splashing in the river behind us, and turning, saw that their reinforcements were crossing the ford, and would soon be upon us. There appeared to be fully a hundred of them, and our case looked hopeless indeed, unless we could 
managed to pass the four ahead of us and reach the comparative safety of the forest beyond the first ford. Commence firing, Orthus, I said. Shoot to kill. Take the two at the left as your targets, and I'll fire at the two at the right. We had better halt and take careful aim, as we can't afford to waste ammunition. We came to a stop about twenty-five yards from the foremost creature, which is a long pistol shot, but they were standing still upon the crest of a knoll, distinctly outlined against the sky, and were such a size as to present a most excellent target. Our shots rang out simultaneously. The creature at the left, at which Orthus had aimed, leaped high into the air and fell to the ground, where it lay kicking convulsively. The one at the right uttered a piercing shriek, clutched at its breast, and dropped dead. Then Orthus and I charged the remaining two, while behind us we heard loud, weird cries and the pounding of galloping feet. The two before us did not retreat this time, but came to meet us, and again we halted and fired. This time they were so close that we could not miss them, and the last of our original lunar foemen lay dead before us. We ran then, ran as neither of us had imagined human beings ever could run. I know that I covered over fifty feet in many a leap, but by comparison with the speed of the things behind us, we might have been standing still. They fairly flew over the lavender sward, indicating that those which we had first seen had at no time extended themselves in an effort to escape us. I ventured to say that some of them leaped fully three hundred feet at a time, and now at every bound they emitted fierce and terrible yells, which I assumed to be their war cry, intended to intimidate us. It's no use, Orthus, I said to my companion. We might as well make our stand here and fight it out. We cannot reach the ford. They are too fast for us. We stopped then and faced them, and when they saw we were going to make a stand, they circled and halted about a hundred yards distant, entirely surrounding us. We had killed five of their fellows, and I knew we could hope for no quarter. We were evidently confronted by a race of fierce and warlike creatures, the appearance of which at least gave no indication of the finer characteristics that are so much revered among humankind upon earth. After a good look at one of them, I could not imagine the creature harboring even the slightest conception of the word mercy, and I knew that if we ever escaped that fierce cordon, it would be by fighting our way through it. Come, I said to Orthus, straight through for the ford, and turning again in that direction, I started blazing away with my pistol as I walked slowly along the trail. Orthus was at my side, and he too fired as rapidly as I. Each time our weapons spoke, a moonman fell, and now they commenced to circle us at a run, much as the savage Indians of the western plains circled the parked wagon trains of our long-gone ancestors in North America. They hurled spears at us, but I think the sound of our revolvers and the effect of the shots had, to some measure, unnerved them, for their aim was poor, and we were not at any time seriously menaced. As we advanced slowly, firing, we made many hits, but I was horrified to see that every time one of the creatures fell, the nearest of his companions leaped upon him and cut his throat from ear to ear. Some of them had only to fall to be dispatched by his fellows. A bullet from Orthus' weapon shattered the hind leg of one of them, bringing him to the ground. It was, of course, not a fatal wound, but the creature had scarcely gone down when the nearest to him sprang forward and finished him. 
and thus we walked slowly toward the ford, and I commenced to have hope that we might reach it and make our escape. If our antagonists had been less fearless, I should have been certain of it, but they seemed almost indifferent to their danger, evidently counting upon their speed to give them immunity from our bullets. I can assure you that they presented most difficult targets, moving as they did in great leaps and bounds. It was probably more their number than our accuracy that permitted us the hits we made. We were almost at the ford when the circle suddenly broke, and then formed a straight line parallel to us, the leader swinging his spear about his head, grasping the handle at its extreme end. The weapon moved at great speed in an almost horizontal plane. I was wondering at the purpose of his action when I saw that three or four of those directly in the rear of him had commenced to swing their spears in a similar manner. There was something strangely menacing about it that filled me with alarm. I fired at the leader and missed, and at the report of my pistol a half-dozen of them let go with their swift whirling spears, and an instant later I realized the purpose of their strange maneuver, for the heavy weapons shot toward us butts first, with the speed of lightning, the crescent-like hooks catching us around a leg, an arm, and the neck, hurling us backward to the ground, and each time we essayed to rise we were struck again until we finally lay there bruised and half-stunned and wholly at the mercy of our antagonists, who galloped forward quickly, stripping our weapons from us. Those who had hurled their spears at us recovered them, and then they all gathered about, examining us and jabbering among themselves. Presently the leader spoke to me, prodding me with the sharp point of his spear. I took it that he wanted me to arise, and I tried to do so, but I was pretty much all in and fell back each time I essayed to obey. Then he spoke to two of his followers who lifted me and laid me across the back of a third. There I was fastened in a most uncomfortable position by means of leather straps which were taken from various parts of the harnesses of several of the creatures. Orthus was similarly lashed to another of them, whereupon they moved slowly back in the direction from which they had come stopping as they went to collect the bodies of their dead, which were strapped to the backs of others of their companions. The fellow upon whom I rode had several well-defined gates, one of which, a square trot, was the acme of torture for me. Since I was bruised and hurt, and had been placed across him face down upon my belly, but inasmuch as this gate must have been hard too upon him, while thus saddled with a burden, he used it but little, for which I was tremendously thankful. When he changed to a single foot, which fortunately for me he often did, I was much less uncomfortable. As we crossed the ford toward the mainland, it was with difficulty that I kept from being drowned, since my head dragged in the water for a considerable distance, and I was mighty glad when we came out again on shore. The thing that bore me was consistently inconsiderate of me bumping me against others and against the bodies of their slain that were strapped to the backs of his fellows. He was apparently quite tireless, as were the others, and we often moved for what seemed many miles at a fast run. Of course, my lunar weight was equivalent to only about thirty pounds on earth, while our captors seemed fully as well muscled as a small earthly horse, and, as we later learned, were capable of carrying heavy burdens. How long we were on the march I do not know, for where it is always daylight and there is no sun nor other means of measuring time, one may only guess at its duration, 
the result being influenced considerably by one's mental and physical sensations during the period. Judged by these considerations, then, we might have been on the trail for many hours, for I was not only most uncomfortable in body, but in mind as well. However that may be, I know only that it was a terrible journey, that we crossed rivers twice after reaching the mainland, and came at last to our destination amid low hills, where there was a level park-like space dotted with weird trees. Here the straps were loosened, and we were dumped upon the ground more dead than alive, and immediately surrounded by great numbers of creatures who were identical with those who had captured us. When I was finally able to sit up and look about, I saw that we were at the threshold of a camp or village, consisting of a number of rectangular huts with high-peaked roofs, thatched, or rather shingled, with the broad round leaves of the trees that grew about. We saw now for the first time the females and the young. The former were similar to the males, except that they were of lighter build, and they were far more numerous. They had udders, with from four to six teats, and many of them were followed by numerous progeny, several that I saw having as high as six young in a litter. The young were naked, but the females wore a garment similar to that worn by the males, except that it was less ornate, as was their harness and other trappings. From the way the women and children rushed upon us as we were unloaded in camp, I felt that they were going to tear us to pieces, and I really believe they would have, had not our captors prevented. Evidently the word was passed that we were not to be injured, for after the first rush they contented themselves with examining us, and sometimes feeling of us or our clothing, the while they discussed us. But with the bodies of those who were slain, it was different, for when they discovered these where they had been unloaded upon the ground, they fell upon them and commenced to devour them, the warriors joining them in the gruesome and terrible feast. Orthus and I understood now that they had cut the throats of their fellows to let the blood, in anticipation of the repast to come. As we came to understand them and the conditions under which they lived, many things concerning them were explained. For example, at least two-thirds of the young that are born are males, and yet there are only about one-sixth as many adult males as there are females. They are naturally carnivorous, but with the exception of one other creature upon which they prey, there is no animal in that part of the interior lunar world with which I am familiar that they may eat with safety. The flying toad and the walking snake and the other reptilia are poisonous, and they dare not eat them. The time had been, I later learned, possibly, however, ages before, when many other animals roamed the surface of the inner moon, but all had become extinct except our captors and another creature of which we at the time of our capture knew nothing, and these two preyed upon one another while the species which was represented by those into whose hands we had fallen, raided the tribes and villages of their own kind for food, and ate their own dead, as we had already seen. As it was the females to whom they must look for the production of animal food, they did not kill these of their own species, and never ate the body of one. Enemy women of their own kind, whom they captured, they brought to their villages, each warrior adding to his herd the individuals that he captured. As only the males are warriors, and as no one will eat the flesh of a female, the mortality among the males is, accordingly, extremely high. 
accounting for the vastly greater number of adult females. The latter are very well treated, as the position of a male in a community is dependent largely upon the size of his herd. The principal mortality among the females results from three causes. Raids by the other flesh-eating species which inhabit the inner lunar world, quarrels arising from jealousy among themselves, and death while bringing forth their young, especially during lean seasons when their warriors have been defeated in battle and have been unable to furnish them with flesh. These creatures eat fruit and herbs and nuts as well as meat, but they do not thrive well upon these things exclusively. Their existence, therefore, is dependent upon the valor and ferocity of their males, whose lives are spent in making raids and forays against neighboring tribes and in defending their own villages against invaders. As Orthus and I sat watching the disgusting orgy of cannibalism about us, the leader of the party that had captured us came toward us from the center of the village, and speaking a single word, which I later learned meant come, he prodded us with his spear point until finally we staggered to our feet. Repeating the word then, he started back into the village. I guess he wants us to follow him, Orthus, I said, and so we fell in behind the creature, which was evidently what he desired, for he nodded his head and stepped on in the direction that he had taken, which led toward a very large hut, by far the largest in the village. In the side of the hut presented to us there seemed to be but a single opening, a large door covered by heavy hangings, which our conductor thrust aside as we entered the interior with him. We found ourselves in a large room without any other opening whatsoever, save the doorway through which we had entered and over which the hanging had again been drawn. Yet the interior was quite light, though not so much so as outside, but there were no means for artificial lighting apparent. The walls were covered with weapons and with the skulls and other bones of creatures similar to our captors, though Orthus and I both noticed a few skulls much narrower than the others, and which from their appearance might have been the human skulls of earthmen, though in discussing it later we came to the conclusion that they were the skulls of the females and the young of the species, whose faces are not so wide as the adult male. Lying upon a bed of grasses at the opposite side of the room was a large male whose skin was of so much deeper lavender hue than the others that we had seen as to almost suggest a purple. The face, though badly disfigured by scars and grim and ferocious in the extreme, was an intelligent one, and the instant that I looked into those eyes I knew that we were in the presence of a leader. Nor was I wrong for this was the chief or king of the tribe into whose clutches fate had thrown us. A few words passed between the two, and then the chief arose and came toward us. He examined us very critically, our clothing seeming to interest him tremendously. He tried to talk with us, evidently asking us questions, and seemed very much disgusted when it became apparent to him that we could not understand him nor he us for Orthus and I spoke to one another several times, and once or twice addressed him. He gave some instructions to the fellow who had brought us, and we were taken out again, and to another hut, to which there was presently brought a portion of the carcass of one of the creatures we had killed before we were captured. I could not eat any of it, however, and neither could Orthus, and after a while, by signs and gestures, 
we made them understand that we wished some other kind of food, with the result that a little later they brought us fruit and vegetables, which were more palatable, and, as we were to discover later, sufficiently nutritious to carry us along and maintain our strength. I had become thirsty, and by simulating drinking, I finally succeeded in making plain to them my desire in that direction, with the result that they led us out to a little stream which ran through the village, and there we quenched our thirst. We were still very weak and sore from the manhandling we had received, but we were both delighted to discover that we were not seriously injured, nor were any of our bones broken. End of chapter 4 Recording by Thomas Copeland